Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. It is episode 108, and as I'm recording this, I'm enjoying a delicious cup of pour-over coffee. While my wife might say that I am very particular, I don't think I am like globally particular about the stuff that I do or the stuff that I eat or the stuff that I drink. But I also wouldn't say that I am easy to please. And so I've recently been eschewing the Keurig in the office and using a pour-over system. And I feel like it dovetails really well with my fly fishing interests. I mean, there's lots of little gadgets and there's obviously all sorts of little different um, formulas you can mess with as you make your cup of coffee. And I enjoy kind of doing that and, and also just having that as a little bit of an intermission in my day. It's The coffee break is no longer walking to the machine, putting a little K-cup in, pressing the button, and waiting for 15 seconds and then getting back to work. Now it's like a uh, you know a 5 to 10 minute little interlude where I mess with a couple of things and I'm a little more engaged and the product is certainly certainly quite delicious. But anyway, uh, I'm not sure if that's why you tuned in to have my coffee brewing recommendations, but uh, here we are in episode 108. And so thanks again for tuning in to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. And uh, today I want to touch on nostalgia. Now, nostalgia is a wonderful thing. Now, some people might think it's a terrible thing, but I think it's a wonderful thing. And recently I did a little bit of traveling, a little safe COVID era traveling. And in doing so, I didn't get a chance to fish a lot. Uh, weather and circumstances did not allow for it, but I still got some satisfaction, albeit tinged with a little bit of um, lamenting that I wasn't able to get out and fish, but I got satisfaction in driving over and spending a little bit of time just looking at and being in the places where I have fished. Um, that's one of the joys of being in an area for a prolonged period of time and also uh, diversifying your fishing exploits is that there's a lot of places where you begin to generate and uh, expand upon memories that you have. So uh, I think this would be a good time to share uh, what I wrote a while ago, and I called Waiting in the Footsteps of Giants. And uh, it touches on nostalgia, but it also touches on building your own memories and uh, passing them on. Being such a tactile activity... Taking up fly fishing is served well by a, quote, watch-and-learn approach. A father will teach a son. Someone with means can hire a guide or instructor. The ambitious novice will simply approach a fellow angler on the stream 
and the fly fisher will gladly consent. For ages, the mentor relationship has come part and parcel with fly fishing. Even those who often fish alone will often have a person who made a small yet formative impact somewhere along the line. Like an apprentice to a tradesman, anglers best learn the craft from another. Thus, the main thrust of the sport is passed on. The nuances of pursuing the quarry and the equally important eccentricities within the culture are also handed from generation to generation. These relationships are special and invaluable. However, not every fly fisher has the benefit of an experienced angling parent, friend, or empathetic onlooker in their life. While online videos can certainly communicate the what and how of fly fishing, they are limited in scope. Viewing the best instructional clips on casting, tying, or reading water will set one up to functionally catch a trout. What is missing is the who and the why. These intangibles are not essential for hooking, playing, or landing a fish. They are still, without a doubt, an essential part of fly fishing. They are passed on in ways that can hardly be expressed through a how-to. Why we, as a culture, fish, is spoken of on long car rides and during streamside coffee breaks. Who makes up that culture is seen across fly shop counters and around beaten up bar tables. Without a flesh and blood person making that connection, it's near impossible to ascertain the information. More importantly, to even figure out what any of it has to do with catching a fish. Thankfully, there's a cloud of fly fishing witnesses that can be tapped into. While they won't take the place of a hands-on mentor, historical personalities of the sport can divulge this information. One doesn't necessarily have to go back to Isaac Walton either. Plenty of remarkable men and women from the past century have much to say about the sport. Their testimonies are of those who waded the rivers only 20 or 50 years prior. Their voice is like a grandparent, so very familiar, yet with enough experiential differences to draw a thought-provoking contrast. A story by John Gerrach is an accessible read for anyone who has even the slightest inclination towards fishing. On the other end of the spectrum, Robert Banke can go from narrative to PhD-level biology in a sentence. Books like these can be immersive. They reveal the depth and breadth of what fly fishing can be. Someone like Ernest Schweibert expresses the synthesis of knowledge and practice. Detailed descriptions of the nymphal forms of aquatic insects take on more meaning when they are put into the setting of a river where trout can be sought. Before him, Theodore Gordon took a similar track while chronicling the changing angling approach and ethos at the turn of the century. Changes within fly fishing can only be properly called revolutionary within the context of the culture. Poring over the works of Vince Marinaro and Charles Fox, the study of rising trout and the refining of imitating terrestrials can legitimately be seen as a eureka moment for anglers. Their contributions changed fly fishing in South Central Pennsylvania, then it spread throughout the trout fishing world. Across the country, Bud Lilly was making waves in both retail and conservation. His name might be more well known today for one over the other, but his legacy tells the true story. Not every individual that has played an important role in fly fishing has written about their accomplishments and perspective. Sometimes obscure outdoor articles or hard-to-find books are the only ways to glean details of fascinating lives. Such is the case for Leon Chandler, who was instrumental in developing tackle and introducing fly fishing to Japan. Carrie Stevens was the woman behind the Grego streamer, which was special in its ability to be tied by the masses as well as catch large trout and salmon. The list is inexhaustible. Lee and Joan Wolf, Joe Brooks, Sparse Gray Hackle, Nick Lyons, Art Flick, Joe Humphreys, Gary Borger, Dave Whitlock, 
and so many more. A proper index would undoubtedly contain the names of many women, local legends, and young fly fishers who had accomplished much in just a few dozen years. Unless the circumstances are exceptional, these men and women cannot offer hands-on in the stream instruction. Their mentoring must occur in the pages of a book or journal, their words and deeds informing and influencing through a necessary medium. Whether the fly fisher has a real-life mentor or not, these insights and experiences are priceless. Lasting the test of time, the best of the best understood how to combine the what and the how with the who and the why. Delivering fly fishing to the next generation of anglers has included preserving the core of what is truly an evolving culture, materials advance, ecosystem shift, and aesthetics change. At its center, fly fishing has remained the same for centuries. The commonality lies within the love for the fish, the waters where they swim, and the peripheral elements of people places, and things. Words and images from the past illuminate the same love in the fly fishers who have made their impact and left their mark. Heeding and enjoying these guideposts will enrich the angler's time on and off the water. Furthermore, it will spur a new generation to share the love and the culture of fly fishing with those who will wait after them. Again, that's called Waiting in the Footsteps of Giants. It was originally written back for January of 2018. It's a great little article, at least in my opinion, and it didn't get a whole lot of buzz when it came out. I don't know what's happening January 15th in 2018, some big football game or something like that, and uh, it got bumped to the bottom of everyone's reading list, but uh, maybe, maybe... Uh, I'm wrong, but I don't know. Tell me what you think. Uh, if, if you uh, if you liked it, um, then uh, then uh, let me know. But uh, just to elaborate a little bit on the uh, lead into it, you know, a lot of these people, a lot of the people that I connect with, ones some of the ones that I, I spend a little bit more time talking about, uh, the South Central Pennsylvania guys and the the Catskill guys. The reason why I was tuned in with them is because that's where I fished. Those are the places that I went, and so those books had a special uh, tie to me. And this is something I've talked about in the podcast and written about uh, exhaustively on the website, is that there is a lot to uh, be gained from finding something to read or to study that has a tie to where you are. That sense of place in German, the Sitz im Leben, what something is written about or to, there's a greater connection if you can find yourself there. So whether it is where you go fishing uh, across the world or across the country or just across the street, if that's a place that you like and a place that you know, then those small references to pools and bends and trees and restaurants and things like that, that can draw you in, and it can create something. It's a it's a a sum that is that is greater than the um, all all the parts put together, as it were, when it comes to fly fishing. And and that's really what what I I want to communicate when it comes to uh, tapping into those fly fishing giants that came before us. Now, here's a caveat: uh, it's fly fishing. We're not talking about the people who penned the Declaration of Independence. Uh, we're not talking about people who have freed slaves or have really even made a contribution that the wider culture uh, can appreciate um, from a day to day level. But these are people who have done something great for what we enjoy doing and really more as peers or mentors than uh, people we put in statues 
um, maybe we name a pool after them, but we don't uh, name our children after them. You know, th- there's an appreciation there, and I think that adds to it. I think that that doesn't denigrate them as people. It doesn't uh, diminish their accomplishments. What it does is it makes us realize that these people are giants for their contributions, um, and it may be as simple as literature. It may be as great as, as restoring a stream or creating awareness for a need to stop the denigration of a stream. It is a perfectly fine thing to enjoy, appreciate, and applaud, and even emulate what these men and women have done without, you know, deifying them or anything like that. Uh, You know, we fall into that trap, and I think we're hypersensitive to it today in the 21st century because a lot of the folks in the limelight, um, at least just in some circles, are social media influencers. And and I've talked about that, and, and we could go down that rabbit trail. But there is something very, very different between a flash in the pan, uh, pretty gussied up, marketed, uh, not even a person, but like an image that who knows how long it's going to last. There's something very different about that and something that has stood the test of time. A book that is 20 years old that's still considered a good book. There's something to be said for that, that not a lot of what we've seen in social media over the last five years is going to have that same sort of legacy. I would say very little, if any, um, is going to come out. Maybe just drips and drabs, but um, certainly something 50 years old, 100 years old. Those are the kind of things that you can look at and say, you know what, they did it. And uh, maybe I don't just don't agree with everything, but uh, I have to acknowledge that they have done something worth paying attention to. And maybe I can at least criticize it, but but that's even then that there's something good to say that a lot of people have bought into this, and if, if I don't agree with it, then I need to at least appreciate what's being said and, and what's happening, so that I can have an informed argument. I disagree with this conservation approach and technique because of X. I disagree with this being the way to deal with fish or fisheries or conservation organizations because of Y. And now at least you know, but if it's been around for 100 years and it's still making the rounds, it's still in the required reading for the 101 classes, as it were, then then at least you know. That's a long excursus, maybe a little too long, but I just don't want people to say I am so anti-establishment that I'm not going to read those people because I see the kind of people that are quote-unquote popular today and I don't want any part of that. Maybe I'm assuming a lot, but I just know that we have this weird pendulum where it swings back and forth, and uh, and people like to live in the extremes. So I would say, yeah, there's a lot of bad, bad fly fishing literature and information out there from 50 years ago, but there's a lot of good, and what's risen to the top is worth looking at. And say you're not a reader, and, and I get that. Not everybody is a reader. Uh, there's a lot that you can do. A lot of the people that have written the tomes that have stood the test of time were also often published in magazines. So if you can get through a short article, you know, 500, 1,000, 2,000 words, and that's worth looking into. You can usually find compilations of what people have written. You can find a lot online. Some stuff is either public domain or being hosted by a fly fishing or an outdoor publication. You know, you rewind back into the middle of the 20th century, and it's not necessarily fly fishing magazines that are putting out fly fishing writing. It is outdoor magazines. It is uh, sports afield. It's field and stream. It's uh, sports illustrated even. And you're able to find fly fishing writing that is just fantastic because it is being done by those people who are in the middle of doing the real work that we look back on and say that was that foundational 
work. That was the kind of bedrock stuff that we are now standing upon. And back then, they were just writing to get a couple hundred bucks from one of the, the sporting magazines. So don't feel like you have to commit yourself to a thousand pages. I recently got uh, a copy of uh, Ernie Schweibert's uh, Trout and I am pumped. I've been looking for a, a copy that's in good shape, and I found a copy that's in good shape. It's not a first edition, but you know what? It is what it is. And I got this big book, and you know, it's. I think each volume, it's a two-volume set, is between 800 and 1,000 pages. And uh, I mean, there are pictures, to be fair, but I'm not going to sit down and read the thing in, a, in one sitting. I'm going to go into it when I'm, I'm thinking about a topic for an article or for my own fishing or for something to talk about on the podcast and try to get that perspective. There's no reason to sit down and read a whole thing like that, especially if you're not a reader. But what you can do is have a book like that on your shelves so it looks pretty. But so you can go in and, you know, just find a topic that interests you and, and just see where things lead you. I mean, I'm sure you've done that with Wikipedia. You read an article and it has a link and it goes to something else and you bounce around. You can treat books that way, but it's not just the written word. Uh, there are so many great opportunities to dip your toe into the history of fly fishing, whether it be legit films like the most recent uh, Joe Humphreys documentary, or it could be just YouTube videos. There's a lot of things out there that you can kind of surround yourself with a little bit of a broader perspective than traditional social media. I would say head to one of the fly fishing museums, assuming that they're open um, because of seasonality or pandemicality, as it were. Uh, go to one of those. And again, if you're not a reader, then you get to see things, potentially even touch things. Um, there's plenty of fly fishing museums on the East Coast, and there are some in the, the Midwest and the West Coast also. That's a lot to just circle back to the main point I wanted to make, which is build up your fly fishing experience off the water or without rod in hand. Whether you're driving over a river or you're taking a lunch break close to that stream or you're reading a book or you're having a conversation with somebody, allow all of those things to feed into why you enjoy fly fishing. Because there is going to be a day where, whether it be your personal circumstances or just greater life circumstances, are going to all kind of come together and you're not going to necessarily be able to fish either forever or for a season in the way that you want to. And so if it's just about being on the water and it's just about catching a fish, you're going to lose it. You're not going to be able to have what you want to have. But if it's richer, if it's deeper, if there's more involved then no matter how many fish you bring to net, no matter how many casts you make, no how many hours or days you log on the water, you're still going to be able to get something wonderful, something enriching, something that produces a great sense of joy from fly fishing. This week on the podcast, the first article was called Going and Giving Tuesday. Going and Giving Tuesday. So in a nutshell, and I encourage you to go read the article, but in a nutshell, I'm kind of making the case for not feeling guilted into giving and not giving just to say you gave. Uh, certainly give uh, to any sort of organization that you feel worthwhile, even, you know, uh, even or especially within conservation uh, or fly fishing. But m might you be able to do more? Might, uh, instead of giving $20 to say, well, I gave $20, uh, could you get more involved in some way 
that could be an even greater help and and that step lead to greater financial investment in, in a way that it's not just about doing it it's about doing something so that was called Going and Giving Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, the article is called Three Reasons to Fish High and Muddy Water. Three Reasons to Fish High and Muddy Water. Uh, very simple article, uh, but it walks through some of the opportunities that are created for the angler when there is significant rainfall or even snowmelt. Now, snowmelt's a little bit different because uh, that, that temperature swing from that uh, Basically, you know, a few degrees warmer than frozen water can uh, add a couple more wrinkles. But if it is an early season snow, and that's kind of the, the point of the article is, is like uh, late fall, early winter. If it is a, a, a snow during a warmer stretch, then that influx of water can really present some good opportunities for fly fishing, even in a, a way that you wouldn't have during the cooler months when there isn't high and muddy water. So go ahead and read that and figure out what in the world I am talking about. This week's recommendation on the podcast is something I mentioned in my holiday fly fishing gift guide, which whether you were listening to this in real time in December of 2020, or you just are listening to it later, um, this is perfectly fine for a January purchase or July purchase, but it is the Ripple Box being put together by Pirate Fly Fishing and Ripple. So this is a product that I wrote about years ago when it was in its design stages, and this is not a domestic product. It was being made by a group of guys in the United Kingdom, and it is a silicone box, but it is not, I'll just straight up say, it's not like a tacky fly box. And I love tackies. I've got plenty of them. Uh, this is just something different. Uh, it is using the same materials, but it's using them in a very different way. So it takes a sheet of silicone and it folds it kind of over and over and over and over and over again so that there are ripples. There are channels that can be used to slide your fly into whether it is a size 22 or it is a size 2 odd. So it's a cool box. It's a box that I have used for my terrestrials because, you know, think about it. I've got giant, giant grasshoppers and tiny little ants, but I want them all to be together because I'm usually fishing them around the same time. So I don't like having them with my dries and I don't like having them uh, squirreled away somewhere random. So I like to have my terrestrials together. So the ripple box has been great for holding them because they're all sorts of different sizes, all sorts of different shapes. And whether it is kind of a season where it's mostly hoppers or a season where there's also some smaller crickets, beetles, and ants in there, I can kind of slide things around. And it's it's great too because if I do have something bigger, I can throw it in there and I'm, I'm not going to mess up what I already have. So there's 15 channels from side to side of this box. It's uh, six and a half inches by three and three quarter inches or something like that. And it's an inch uh, deep. Um, I wouldn't use it for dry flies. I'm, I have before. It's just not my preferred dry fly box. I, I like boxes that protect my hackle. In fact, I don't like any silicone boxes for my dry flies, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but this is being put out by the good people at Pirate Fly Fishing. Uh, they make fly patches that I think are fantastic. I use them in my car. I use them on the water. I use them by my bench. But uh, it's a cool thing to see two companies that I was able to kind of talk with and write about back when they both started up doing something together and I would suggest grabbing this box if you just want a nice all-purpose fly box 
whether it's for your terrestrials or you want to cram every fly that you're going to take out on the water um, in this box. This can handle it. Like I said, it, it's there's no limits on what you can fit in there um, except for vertical size. That's really your only limitation. If your fly, if your, your hook um, from the, the, the point to the uh, shank is an, over an inch wide or it has some sort of material that is going to prevent it from being compressed, it won't fit in there. Otherwise, everything else is going to fit in there. So it's a, a really cool box. It's got a little latch. It's got a cool little pirate logo on the front, but you can still see it. It's not opaque. It's not flashy. It's just a nice quality fly box, and it'll run you $26 for a virtually indestructible fly box that is well worth it. You can find a link on the show notes for this podcast episode on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingcross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. 